This morning, we hear from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has been challenged continuously with legal and rhetorical questions and arguments from scribes and legal scholars of the day. And now he answers a question in which he reveals the foundations of our faith. Let us open our ears, our minds, our imaginations, and listen across time and space to hear God's wisdom in these words. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had left the Sadducees speechless, they met together. One of them, a legal expert, tested him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the and all the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God in spirit, for the word of God among us. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Loving God, who can answer whatever questions we throw your way, who listens when we call out, who inspires us to live in your love and practice it with our lives. Be with us now that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say, Amen. First, I want to be sure you can hear me in the back. Good? Okay. Good. I'm, yes, great. I'm going to preach from here uh, today. I'm going to try it again. First of all, I just have to say it's great to be back with all of you again. When I last left you, it was cold and snowy. And it is good to have this balmy July day to be with you, uh, in which it's actually nice to have the windows open and to feel the breeze. And I'm grateful to see the newest member of our congregation, uh, Owen West. Ruth is here with us. He is four days old in a striped jumper back there. Welcome. It's good to see you, Tanya and Jason and Ella, big sister. I also just have to say thank you. Uh, I am grateful to serve a congregation that sees the need for sabbatical, 
for its pastors, but also for all of us to take regular periods of rest. And I am grateful for this time that I had very much that Robert and I had together. And I realized last week when I heard Kate preach that you all wonder what I actually ended up doing. Uh, Because when I left you, all we knew is that I had two one-way tickets to Tel Aviv and a few Airbnb reservations. And what was I going to do? And uh, we didn't know what we were going to do right then either. Some of what we did initially was to go check in on Robert's parents, uh, who we were grateful to see, and to spend some time on Cape Cod. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the journey not all of it today, and I'm going to work to figure out the best way that I may share a lot of that journey with you and also hear about your journey. I will have to say I was delighted this week to check in with staff and with our sabbatical pastor, Peter Ilgenfritz, and with leadership to realize what great work and ministry happened while I was away and how alive this congregation has remained in my absence. And it was actually pleasantly surprising to realize that Uh, the three employees I met with most regularly this week, Susan, Amy, and Sarah, were actually more energized for the work than when I left. Uh, So that is not exactly what you expect when you come back from an absence. So that, I am grateful to you all, and I'm especially grateful to Peter, who I believe was a wonderful spiritual leader with you during this time. He's a trusted friend and colleague who has been a wise counselor to me over the years, and I'm so glad that you got to experience his leadership among you. I also just have to say a a word of thanks to those who helped us put together this Lilly sabbatical grant, which is how I was able to be gone as long as I was and to do some of the things we did. It was a very generous grant and some of that money also helped for Peter to be here and we're also looking for some ways to spend some of that grant in creative endeavors together. So grateful to that team. Some of you are here today, some I know are away but it would not have been possible to do what we did without that grant. As Kate reminded us last week, the grant was about faith as an adventure, mountains, monasteries, and music. And I had intended to climb Kilimanjaro and Mount Sinai in Egypt and also Mount Athos in Greece. And then we had two solid years of a pandemic. I had a second knee surgery and uh, we needed to pare it down. So it became more about rest, recovery, and renewal. Uh, I still visited a lot of churches, we still sang quite a bit, and uh, we also visited some monasteries. And the main trajectory was one that was indicated in the grant, which was Israel, Greece, Italy, and France. And we spent the first two and a half weeks in Israel alongside some dear friends with whom we regularly have Shabbat dinner. And my intention there was to share with Robert some of my favorite places to have it be a more relaxed time, to not be there in the blistering hot months of July and August. It was actually the coldest March they've had on history for 100 years. And that was quite an adventure. It wasn't necessarily the most relaxing part of the sabbatical, but it was a good start. And from there, then we traveled across the Mediterranean and... uh, flew back from Paris on June 3rd, and then have had made some other little trips and spent time with family since we've been back. During that time, we did, in fact, visit a lot of churches, sometimes just stepping in to see what they felt like, sometimes popping in for mass. We were on an island in Greece where we were above the archbishop's home, so we could see him going in and out, and the Church of the Metamorphosis, which uh, is how, how you 
literally in Greek how you say transfiguration. And I have to tell you, in Greek churches, they do not scrimp on iconography or decorations. They are very thick and ornate, sometimes a little overwhelming to me. But nothing quite that I, like what I was prepared for when we went to Italy. Some of you have traveled in Italy. Some of you gave me advice about traveling in Italy. It was the first time I'd been there, uh, even though I studied the language. I was there for about three weeks. And the first place we went to Rome, and on a morning walk, we arrived at the start of Holy Week on Palm Sunday. And I went for a little walk just around the corner, around 7 a.m., 7.30, and just popped into a little church about the size of ours. And they were having a 7.30 Mass on Holy Tuesday. And I was blown away by the artwork. Just incredible. The ceilings, the walls, the canvases, everything. Everywhere you looked was amazing art. And I was blown away by the depth and incredible detail of it, of the Baroque period. And I thought, did Michelangelo paint this as well? But he didn't. I was actually struck by the sensuality of the artwork, which is kind of jarring when you first see it. It's clear that Jesus in those days went to the gym regularly, apparently. <laughs> and I wanted to show Robert this church, but I could never get back in because it's actually a small, out-of-the-way church. And it was only open for Mass, which just gave me a little bit of an indication of the layers and layers of art and history and adoration that goes on in a place like Rome. So I actually have to say that as we visited churches across Italy, I was also a little overwhelmed by them, that they seemed just a little too much for me at times. And we wandered around, we got books on them to try to understand them better, we had friends advise them, but I want to just share with you one slice of the sabbatical and how I believe it relates to where we may be at with United Parish today, and also with the scripture we heard about the fundamentals of our faith. Robert and I stayed in a family run in, in the region of Umbria, which is the only landlocked part of Italy. It's in west, east, central. And we had a balcony view with a five-mile view across the plains of the town of Assisi. Now, I believe some of you advised me to go to Assisi. We wrote in the grant we were going to go there. Many of you know it is famous for being the home of Francesco di Bernardone, better known as St. Francis, probably the second most famous person in sainthood, second to the Virgin Mary. He's one of the patron saints of Italy. And every day we could see the lights turn up in the evening on Assisi. We could see the church down on the plain where his little church is inside that big cathedral. And we visited Assisi one day and had a beautiful day that you might expect in an Italian hill town. Lots of tile work, great fresh pasta, Beautiful churches, the Church of Santa Chiara, St. Clare, his sister in the faith, the church of, over the house where he was born, and then this amazing double basilica in which the top, you can go in and see these frescoes from the 13th and 14th century that tell all about the history of St. Francis' life, and then down below his crypt where he's buried. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims come to this place every year. We watched YouTube videos before we went of walking tours. What actually most impressed me was the cathedral that is actually just outside the walls, which are the natural woods, the woods of St. Francis. They've been recently restored, so you can walk in them freely, but I actually thought, 
that's actually where St. Francis worshiped the most, was out there where the birds could sing to him, where he could commune with God, where he could see God's natural beauty growing around him. We often sing all creatures of our God and King, which is that hymn that St. Francis wrote. And we often pray his, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace, that prayer that is enduring. And we had a great meal watching the sunset over the plains. It was idyllic, actually. If you want, I can show you a video of it. But as we left that day, we delved a little bit more into the life of St. Francis and reminded ourselves and learned some things that we didn't know, which according to one of his biographers, St. Francis wore a filthy tunic all the time, a piece of rope as a belt, no shoes. While preaching, he would often dance or weep or make animal sounds or strip to his underwear or play the zither. His black eyes would sparkle, and many people thought he was mad or dangerous. They threw dirt at him. Women would lock themselves in their houses when he would come around. And I wondered how all the thousands of pilgrims who come to Assisi today, including Robert and me, would respond to St. Francis if we actually met him. We probably wouldn't find him in those churches. In fact, I think he might be a little embarrassed by those churches. Francis took all of this in serenely. He had actually been grown up in the bourgeoisie. They didn't call it in that day, but his father was a merchant who wanted him to go into the business, and Francis renounced all of that. And that's what you learn about in all those panels of all those frescoes. It's his life and this sort of Jesus-like back-to-the-gospel existence that he tried to have, actually more like John the Baptist. And the qualities that at the beginning had marked him as an eccentric eventually made him seem holy. His words, one writer said, were soothing, burning, and penetrating. He had a way of making his whole body like a tongue, And when he arrived in town, the church bells would ring, and people stole the water in which he washed his feet, because it was said to cure sick cows. So there's another little story in another little town we visited nearby, Gubbio, where there was a wolf that was threatening people and actually killing people. And they called in Francis to see if he could do anything, and Francis met with the wolf, had a conversation with him. And they shook paw and hand in good faith after talking together. He said, why are you doing this? Why are you attacking the people of Gubbio? And the wolf said, it's because I'm hungry. And so Francis encouraged the people of the town to start feeding the wolf, which they did. Francis said, if I can get them to do that, will you stop attacking them? And the wolf agreed. And they kept the pack. And when the wolf died two years later, the people said a mass for him. Such was the power, the strange power to us, of St. Francis. But I kept thinking about that double basilica, this amazing town, and all the little tchotchkes and crosses and things you can buy in Assisi. And I wondered how St. Francis would think of those things. When he died, they immediately changed all the rules of the religious order. Before, they couldn't own property. They couldn't prepare for the next day. They had to rely on the kindness of strangers. But all that changed as they became institutionalized into the church. And that woods outside the basilicas went into great disrepair over the centuries. It's possible that the severely ascetic Francis would have been appalled by these grand churches and this codification of his society. 
And my guess is Jesus might have been a little put off as well. Which made me think about these magnificent buildings and why we have them and what we do in them and to what purpose. And what is our purpose as a community as we come back? Because I will say I learned while I was away that uh, some of the repairs on our building may reach the double digit in the millions, which I was not phased by. But as many of you know from our all-parish meeting last month, we have some challenges about this beautiful building. Now, I'm not suggesting that we tear down this building. That's not at all what I'm saying today. What I am saying, though, is that it caused me to reflect on the fundamentals of the Christian faith. I grew up, like some of you did, learning that the fundamentals were that you had to believe in the virgin birth, bodily resurrection, the miracles, the inerrancy of Scripture, the second coming. Those were actually articulated at the end of the 19th century by Americans who feared the coming of modernism. If you want to know the fundamentals of the Christian faith, as far as I'm concerned, they're how Jesus answered this legal scholar. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your being, and love your neighbor as yourself. As I look around this congregation, as I think about the work we've done the past eight and a half years together that has preceded my time here, when I think about the work before us now and the work that will be yet to come, the ministry and witness we have, these seem like great touchstones to come back to. Loving God with our heart, soul, and minds, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And how do we do that? I'm delighted to hear that Thrifty Threads, our thrift shop, is thriving, burgeoning, as it gets to know our neighbors better and how we can help I'm looking forward to finding out more about how the food pantry is doing in this brave move we took last August to bring them into our space. And I saw the people lined up this week to receive food. I've been grateful to hear about what we've been doing for affordable housing, and I'm eager to get updates on that and how we're interacting with the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization to do power organizing. And I'm grateful, as always, for the way hearts and hands our ministry within here, our ministries among us, how we love ourselves. Because in that equation of loving God and our neighbor, there's also the equation of loving ourselves as God loves us. It's part of why I think the words of assurance are so important to our ministry. So to tell you where my mind and heart are at, as we think about the challenges we face with our building the challenges we face in the larger culture that you heard about in the prayers that we hear about in the news every day, where we feel like the fabric of our nation is coming apart, where we wonder what is a true Christian witness in this nation and how do we embody it? I feel we need to come back again and again to where our love is at. Love that is not mere affection, love that sometimes is not even liking, but love that comes from a pure place, a place of wanting the best for one another, of wanting to follow God with the purest of intentions and the thing, things God loves, which are the people who are forgotten, the people who are out of the, out of, out of the way, out of sight, often out of mind, the people who are suffering, and for a world around us, a natural world that needs our care, and our love. So I'm excited in these next weeks, in these next months, as we catch up with each other about what we've been doing, about what we've been learning, 
to share in this work of love once again, of loving neighbor, loving God, and loving ourselves. And to remember that God is in the midst of us always, spurring us on, blowing the winds of the Holy Spirit, and walking with us. Amen.